Hello everyone, my name is Tracy Siska. I'm your host of the Chicago Justice Show. I'm also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. Today's show, we are very excited to have uh, a former intern of ours, but also a freelance journalist and law student, Jonathan Ballou. And we're going to talk about his experience covering the George Floyd protests from the streets of Chicago and some of his thoughts on the recent report released by the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General that looked at the CPD's actions in response to the protests and unrest that followed. But first, a little introduction. Every Wednesday, we have CJP Nation. It's the advocacy wing of our organization. We have well over 100 people participating now. You can... Um, you can jump on that link that should be in the chats now. Um, it's a Zoom link. We meet every Wednesday, do some strategy, talk about the projects. Um, you're gonna, you can get involved in crowds, uh, crowdsource research projects. You can be a social media ambassador for us. You can be a legislative, uh, help us with some advocacy on legislation, something that um, while I'm going to keep a secret right now, there is going to be some movement in that um, area. I've been told anyways around transparency. Um, soon, so I should probably have an update for you later this week. Once again, um, if you're interested in sponsoring this show, both individually and corporate sponsors, there's a donation in the link in the chat for a donation page. Please uh, support our show, which is now going Monday, Wednesday, Fridays at 5.30 Central. We move to three times a week. And uh, really quickly, before we jump on with Jonathan, I want to talk and uh, draw your attention to... Um, a new feature on CJP's blog, it drops every Monday. It's basically a quick and dirty analysis of uh, gun violence coverage uh, in the city, looking at what we call the dailies, uh, the television stations 257, 9, and Fox 32, and then the Tribune Sun-Times, looking at their coverage and how that coverage um, basically differs by outlet. And um, what outlets... Um, splatter their coverage on covering as many of the shootings as they can. What are covering almost no shootings? There's a lot of disparity. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at how that changes weekend to weekend, how they define a the weekend. So all of that's there every Monday. The link in the chat is to our latest version of that. And that's going to post every Monday afternoon going forward. So please check it out. Okay. So I'd like to welcome uh, our guest here, Jonathan Ballou. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Hey, Tracy. How's it going? Nice to see you. All right. All right. So tell us a little bit about your background, because you didn't take the most direct path um, to both either journalism or to law school. So tell us a little bit about your background. Um, let's see. I, I guess I'll just start when I was about 20. I dropped out of school. Uh, I was down in South Carolina and went and joined the Marine Corps. Did that for five years, decided I was ready to hang it up and got out and thought I would come to Chicago. And I found DePaul and spent some time at DePaul's journalism program, kind of fell in love with it. And uh, I did some work with NBC as an intern. And then I got hired by Block Club Chicago. And so I tr dropped out of undergrad again and worked with <laughs> Block Club for about a year full time. Uh, went, decided I wanted to work, go into law school and uh, that the daily journalism grind wasn't really for me. I uh, still love reporting, still love journalism. Um, but I went, decided to go to law school. And um, so I went back to DePaul and I finished my undergrad degree right before I turned 29. And now I'm in law school and I am a second semester, first year law student. So I survived the dreaded first semester. And I am trying to survive the dreaded second semester. Okay, so before entering, oh, let's go, let's talk about, I want to get this, because I'm really interested, I think you did some amazing reporting over the summer. I read some of the stuff you wrote about post um, your experiences. Um, in the Marines, you have to take an oath, I'm, I believe, to support the Constitution and defend it. How do you think that colored and framed your view of the protests, of what was actually happening on the streets? Did it have no impact? Did it have an impact? Because um, I'm especially asking because I've always found it interesting um, that I've always thought like the military, even the police to some extent, you're supposed to be there to defend rights. And part of those rights is to protest. And you should be there to defend the ability for people to protest, 
not necessarily restrict it because that's part of what you're fighting for. Now, I had, I wasn't in the military, so I may not know what the hell I'm talking about. So I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, no, you're not, you're not wrong, Tracy. You definitely take an oath of enlistment. It's called, you know, you raise your hand and, you know, swear allegiance to all enemies or against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And, you know, I, I don't know the whole thing by heart, but uh, they read it to you. Um, but I guess in terms of how that would have shaped my feelings about covering the protests, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have a great answer for you just because by that point when I was covering this, I had I'd pretty much taken my military hat off, like metaphorically, if you will say, and uh, kind of left it behind. And so I was looking at this scene as more of a reporter than as a veteran. I, I mean, I will say, I, I suppose uh, military and police officers can be analogous in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways, I think we're very different too. So I, I wouldn't want to step in necessarily and, and take the role of a police officer since I've never lived that life or never been a sworn officer. But uh, I, I do think there's an oath that's that's taken by either profession. And you look at the side of any police car and you see protect and serve. So I think that's, that's, that's it's not really something that dominated any of my coverage, I wouldn't say. But uh, I mean, I do think there is there is an element of, you know, when you talk to the, you cover the protesters, you see one of their favorite chances. Who do you serve? Who do you protect? And so I think that issue is definitely framed by both sides in different ways. Okay, in your piece, which I strongly suggest people read, um, what I learned at the Revolution in Chicago Magazine, I think it was published in June, if I'm not mistaken, June of last year. Sounds um, right. I was it in July, but June sounds right. I was interested in your reaction to seeing a flag burned, right? Ah, because yeah. Because something that happened, and usually when this happens, um, it's incredibly divisive. So I just thought people should be able to hear what your thoughts were about that at the time, at least. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think even seeing, I had never really seen a flag burning in person. Obviously I've seen on TV videos, images, but I'd never seen one in person. And I, I think I took that image that you're showing there. Um, and I was, if not, I was literally right next to whoever else was taking it. Cause I was feet away <laughs> from that, that gentleman. Okay. Um, and it was jarring for me, I think probably as a military veteran and, you know, the pomp and circumstance and reverence we place on the flag. But I think, again, like, like I had been out of the Marine Corps for years at that point. And so, you know, you transition into your civilian life as well. And, you know, you think about, you know, I, I went from kind of shocked and jarred to realizing like, I actually felt a bit of pride that we live in a country where, you know, uh, someone can stand on the street and burn a flag and that's okay. And, you know, you look at Texas v. Johnson and that's a, that's a prime case of saying, you know, we have the right to burn a flag because we're not a country that's supposed to be sycophants towards ideology or symbolism, but we're supposed to be, you know, protective free speech. And free speech doesn't necessarily mean things you like or dislike. I mean, obviously, we know there's a fine line between free speech and hate speech. But, I mean, the, the flag is, you know, government protest is one of the things that is protected. So I think I, I, I went from shocked at first to just feeling, I guess, a lot of complex feelings about what it means to be an American. Oh, my God. Nuance, complexity. That's not allowed. <laughs> Come on, especially in America now. Just be a sycophant, and you're very, you're good. You're a good guy. Um, yeah. From a guy living in D.C. and had insurrectionists standing out in front of his uh, apartment building, all geared up. Um, probably guy, mostly from guys who were very too scared to ever enlist in anything. I just find it hilarious that they all dress up in the garb, because um, it doesn't take some kind of courage to join the military. Anyways, I don't want to get lost on that rant because it'll just drag us down here. What made you, I think I got the date of Friday, May 29th. What makes you go to that first protest? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a great question. Um, I wasn't planning on covering anything. I wasn't really a working journalist at the time. You know, I was freelancing occasionally. But um, I had obviously been watching what was going on with George Floyd and watching the protests spark up around the country. And I just, I, I saw, started seeing some stuff on Twitter about, you know, some actions going on downtown and I, I don't know, I, you know, I've covered a lot of protests, but it felt like this, this was kind of a different moment. Um, and so I just figured I would head downtown 
and I would just post to my Twitter feed, you know, um, and just be there as a live reporter on the ground. It's the type of reporting I feel I, um, I'm good at. It's the type of reporting I feel like I have something to offer. So I just went and hit the streets and I didn't have an outlet, didn't have any even plans to write a story. I guess I just kind of wanted to be there as a third party observer, a trained observer, I guess, um, in a lot of ways. And just wanted to be there with, you know, a camera and a notepad and be able to broadcast out what I saw happening on the ground. And I, from there, I mean, the next, as you know, three or four days kind of spiraled into something I never would have expected. And I want to read a quote. It's a little lengthy, but I want to read it from the Chicago Magazine article uh, that has to do with pepper spray. Because um, you're a firsthand uh, recipient of that, as we'll get to in a couple minutes. But there well, that wasn't my first time. time. <laughs> oh, no, I am sure. The yeah, military, we'll the military also. takes care of that. Oh, yeah. Um, and you could tell, I will say, we'll get to that, but you could tell from your response that it was not the first time, which we'll watch in the, here in a minute. Um, so there were moments when I understood from a tactical standpoint why police were deploying pepper spray. At times, only a dozen of them were trying to control hundreds, if not thousands, of protesters. But other times, it seemed like in retaliation or anger. Often the crowd would be complying with orders and pepper spray would come out regardless. On multiple occasions, I had to scream press and hold up my pass to avoid being directly sprayed. So how can you give us, uh, give our audience, because I agree. I mean, first of all, I'll say I agree that there's a lot of complexity to all these things happening, especially as that's going on. So I appreciated the, the, um, the not, um, I guess, all one side looking at things because um, obviously the as we'll get to the inspector general's report the police were overwhelmed and unprepared from pretty much from the beginning um, but how often how many times I should say how often how many times do you think you saw pepper spray used when it probably shouldn't have been or you didn't see a reason for it to be used yeah you know it's hard to quantify um, I would a lot of it blurs together and I'm, I'm kind of why I'm glad I wrote some of it down because it's hard to remember specific moments, but I, I would say I wouldn't want to quantify it, but I'd say a handful of times I definitely saw pepper spray being used where, I mean, obviously I wasn't in the officer's shoes, but from my pr limited perspective, I was, I was looking at it as, well, gee, it looks like that, that officer is, telling a crowd to comply while pepper spraying. And I mean, I know basic use of force principles and that's generally not how they're supposed to be used. <laughs> and I think the general, inspector general report backs a lot of that up that says there was a lot of improper use of batons and pepper sprays. And a lot of the guys without any real training other than like maybe once or twice in the academy. Right. And that's the hidden little you know, fact that I don't think people are getting out of the consent decree and the civil rights investigation. Um, I have sources in the department. One of my um, good friends has been on the force 15 years and he's complained to me. I don't understand why we don't get use of force training every year. He goes, I'm on task. I've been on task force with the FBI and federal agents. They get use of force, hand to hand combat stuff every year. He goes, I'm going to find any training. See, every, probably every month or whenever we're out in the field, we'll get escalation or use of force retraining. And, you know, it's definitely not something you do one time. And that's a disservice to everybody involved, civilian and officer. Yeah, it's setting them up in failure and you're putting them in situations where they're unprepared and then nervous for their safety, nervous about oversight um, instead of acting on their training, which you can't do if you don't have it. Um, for ladies and gentlemen, my buddy did not has not had use did not have prior to the invest civil rights investigation and them realigning some of the training. He really hadn't any, had any training since he was in the academy, which is just mind blowing. You know, like they would play a tape um, part of the civil rights investigation. They they would play tapes at roll calls. You have video, and half the cops aren't watching. They're playing games on their phones or texting, and that was supposed to be that counted as training, which is just mind blowing. Okay, another thing with the, um, another question related from the article. You talk about a, an officer pointing a rubber bullet gun at you and you realizing yeah. at the distance you could be, at distance you were from him, it could be fatal. 
So a couple of questions right off the bat popped in my head. How did you know it's a rubber bullet gun? I'm surmising it's from your uh, time in the military. And how did you know that that could be fatal at that distance? Well, I mean, it looked like it looked like an M32 grenade launcher, honestly. Um, but I know I was pretty, I was pretty confident that they weren't have live grenades in there. So, uh, you know, the, the just kind of took sense that I knew that there was rubber bullet guns out there. I'd heard reports of that being out there and it seemed like the only logical weapon. And it, it turns out looking back at it, that is what was out there. But I mean, I just know that troops and on, on deployment and in training have had accidents with those where if you shoot someone close enough and you accidentally hit them in the head or a ricochet or what have you, people have died. And so I didn't really ever feel in danger throughout the entire time I was covering anything. I mean, obviously things were hectic and chaotic, but, you know, part of that is being trained as a reporter, part of that's being trained as a you know military member. But the time where I most felt out of not out of control but maybe out of safety was when i saw that that bullet gun pointed at me from like a very close range i don't remember what i wrote in the article i don't remember at this point but it was it was close and i didn't have anywhere to back up because i was i want to say i was on grand downtown and i was coming up towards this these windows and walls of businesses and there were people on my left and i mean there was i think the dreadheaded cowboy was on his horse and you know things were going crazy a little crazy and there was nowhere for me to kind of be in a safe position and that that felt scary to me but i mean luckily we didn't see any of those deployed at least in my perspective so everything was fine but i think that did that didn't sit right with me that you know the officer went from having his his weapon ready to you know to at the ready and that that's a that's a calculated decision tactically that anyone in the military would learn or i'm sure police officers learn there's a difference between being you know at having your weapon trained down and having it up and at the ready. Okay, so in your opinion, obviously it's only your opinion, did you, did, when you think about it, did you think he was doing that because it was, was he trying to intimidate you? Did you think he was no. actually thinking about using it? No, not necessarily. I, I mean, I would be, I think it'd be presumptuous for me to try to get into the officer's state of mind. Um, but I, I didn't feel directly that I was able to say, oh, this guy's got malice and he's trying to, you know, trying to hold this, trying to scare people. I, I wouldn't say that'd be fair at all. I think the guy was just probably getting ready and just making sure he was in a good, good position. But in my personal experience, I wouldn't have that thing trained up that close at people ready to fire, you know? So again, I, I know it's complicated and this was happening in real time and it's easy to judge the decisions of anybody 2020 hindsight. It is, but unfortunately, that's how you, right, you um, let's hope they find some of these officers in these investigations. Um, so, because that's how police accountability gets done, unfortunately. Okay, um, we're going to, I'm going to play a clip now from your Twitter feed of you being pepper sprayed. Okay. And I, I want the public to see this thing. There's no sound playing, right? Because what's happening right, right. now is he's, yep. he's I, I'm screaming press and we're backing up and they're telling us to back up. And that's where he sprays. And, and from my perspective, and I think from the video's perspective, everyone is backing up. You can see me backing up. You can see everybody backing up. Nobody's going forward. And then the spray just starts coming out. And I mean, he keeps spraying a couple different times. Yeah, and one of the interesting things I found about this is, well, I would say from a police accountability perspective, I would be very interested, one, if they can find the officer that did this, and I know you have a lawsuit going on, but also, like, did, I'm convinced the police accountability stems from a culture within the department that doesn't take, um, that doesn't let um, misconduct stand, Right. So, well, you know, right. Mayor Ron Penuel, you know, acknowledged a code of silence and, you know, that's yep. been at this point acknowledged by most police leaders. And I think I think there's to some of that as a degree. But I think um, I think we saw from the inspector general report that, you know, there was a lack of accountability with body cameras or with arrest reports or with mass arrest reports. And that now, even afterwards, like they're not able to 
find accountability for most of these places because there was no body camera or there was nothing logged and even an incident report. Yeah. And if people go on, go on Twitter, the links in the, uh, in the chats, um, I watched the whole thing. It's about almost two minutes, I think. And there's an interesting point in there. First of all, you were incredibly calm. So I, I kudos to that. You kept reporting, you kept talking. Um, I don't think any, I don't think any other reporter in Chicago um, would have been that calm. And I'm, I'm going to probably point at least to some of that you've been, that you were already, you had been pre-exposed to pepper spray through the military and that you were in the military. Cause there's no way I would have been anywhere near that calm. Um, well, I'm sure we've got some of the, some of the Chicago reporters are pretty hardcore. So I wouldn't say I'm the only one. I'm sure there's plenty of others of, I know there's some guys on the street that I worked with in Kenosha who took some rubber bullets to the leg and the, the, the arm or what have you. So reporters, I mean, reporters put themselves, especially frontline shoe leather reporters, they put themselves out there. And, uh, I mean, you look at someone who doesn't have military training is up there on the front lines reporting live throughout this entire, you know, I've got friends who were there at the Columbus statue and they, some of them took batons, some of them had objects thrown at them. And so I think Chicago reporters are a different breed. Um, so what everyone watch that video towards the end, getting to talk to about police accountability. I thought this was interesting. You're, discussing loudly with one of the cops, like, hey, your guy's spraying the press. And I just thought it was amazing. It's like, it wasn't me, man. Like, yeah, hey, I think I was did upset. something wrong happen. <laughs> right. Did something wrong happen or didn't? And what are you going to do? Your job is to stop bad things from happening and stop people breaking the law. I just found his, his nonchalance, nonchalance about, you know, it wasn't me. I don't care what happened. Um, on video, I, it rather annoyed me. As a police accountability guy, when you get that type of response, it's hard to imagine things changing. Well, you know, I think in, okay. any, in any situation when you have, if, it's, if the truth is that it's just a few bad apples, but if, if, if other apples aren't speaking out against the bad apples, then I guess, you know, that, what does that have you in any organization? You know, there's a lot of code of silences in the military that, I've had to come tumbling down as well because, you know, people are afraid to speak up against the few bad actors. But I mean, if you're not speaking up against bad acting, then you're participating in it to a degree. Right. No. And that's the problem. Everyone says, well, it's a few bad apples. So the problem is it's the barrel not saying anything about the bad actors. Like, exactly. I don't think every Chicago cop or even the majority of Chicago cops are brutal or massively racist or anything. It's just that they will protect those guys to the end. No matter what they do, guys and girls, what they do. And that's the problem is them not saying anything's the real problem. And it's hard. It's built in a culture that is long standing to not say anything. Um, so let that, let that be for sure. All right. I have a question because um, this aggravated, I did not see this. Um, I will say this aggravated the hell of me when I read it in your article. I did not see when this happened. So Saturday, after the initial round of protests, the mayor holds a press conference with Superintendent Brown. I think that was Sunday morning. The, or, okay, let's say Sunday morning. And they're praising yeah, yeah, yeah. the actions of the officers. What were your feelings about that? Yeah, I was pretty angry about that press conference. I remember it pretty well. Um, and I don't think, I think the thing that made me so angry was that I knew that, that how could they even possibly be praising either side's actions when there was no time to really review it all you know I, I mean you, you know look how long it took the inspector general to review the events of this summer to, to come out and unilaterally praise officers and, and you look at um mr foreman you know the head of the police board he's out there praising the officers that morning and then i think the same day hours later he gets beaten by cops uh, while he's walking through a protest he gets batoned in the legs and so it's just i found that to be incredibly incensing and, and a bit condescending towards the massive amounts of protesters who were downtown, who many of them, uh, it's been proven now, have received received mistreatment. And I, I thought it was very frustrating, especially as a mayor who ran uh, a progressive campaign, uh, you know, about bringing in the light. I thought that was very frustrating. Yeah, I tell you, had I known that Gihan Foreman, who's the president of the police board, had participated in that press conference and said this, I'm quoting from your article, I would have not had, he's talking, Gian Foreman is talking to the superintendent. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he's head of the Chicago Police Board, which is the organization that is last in line around police accountability. This is what he says 
to Superintendent David Brown about his officer's actions the last two nights. I would not have had the same restraint that many of your officers showed last night. First yeah, of all, Gihan, yep. you're a police accountability person. You don't show up and praise the police for anything. You don't know what happened. They may have been great. They may have been horrible. You don't praise anything. You should not, he should have never been at that press conference. And had I, had I known this happened, I'd have been called for his firing. He needs to go. And I'm saying it now. And CJP is going to keep harping on this. He needs to go. He should have never said that, should have never been involved in that. It's, um, at least me, it's ridiculous. He got called and he got pressured into going to that press conference. What does he know at that point? What does anyone know about whether the police did good or bad at that point? That's all we know. Yeah. On the ground reporters, I mean, we, we were still trying to make heads or tails of it. And I know that the police and the mayor's office has access to plenty of footage that obviously the general public doesn't. But I got to imagine that there's no way you could parse through that level of uh, that level of an event or a protest or even an uprising or whatever, whatever, what have you in 12 hours. I just have a hard time believing that. No, I, I agree. And he should not have been there. But he was there as a prop. And he he he. Um, he did their bidding and that as a police accountability person. And when you're in that position, you shouldn't do anyone's bidding. You're supposed to be independent of everyone, the cops, the, the supposed victims or the alleged victims or the victims, however you want to phrase them survivors. You should not have been there at all. So that really pisses me off, but let's move on. When did you first, when did it first dawn on you? Or when did you first realize that police officers were hiding their names and their badges? That's a good question. I'm not sure when I first realized it. Um, I got some tips that started flooding into me via mostly Twitter DMs, um, direct messages, just people saying, mm -hmm. hey, I don't know you, but this is what I'm seeing with some pictures. And so I got a call from an editor at the Chicago Reporter, um, Fernando Diaz, who is uh, I don't believe he's there anymore, but he's an excellent editor. And he, he called me just to see if we wanted to work together on something freelance-wise because he'd been following my coverage. And so I just happened to be DM'd this, these things about the badges. So I said, hey, I've got this tip. Are you interested? And so we started pursuing it. And before you knew it, I mean, we got hundreds, hundreds of photos of covered names, covered stars, covered badges. Some of them were tucked in. Some of them had blatant black tape over them. Some of them weren't wearing them. And I was like, wow, this is not a one-off. This is not a one-off. This is an absolute, you know, epidemic or a problem sweeping through the department. And so we started, you know, we started asking, you know, CPD, COPA, BIA, Bureau of Internal Affairs. Uh, and so we started, you know, poking into it and digging into it and we weren't really getting any answers. Uh, no one was telling us really much. They were just saying that they'll look into it. And then eventually we did get some good information back. I believe it was from COPA uh, who was working with us. And we found out that, no, you know what? They pushed us to BIA, I think. But either way, we found out there were 78 complaints from civilians and otherwise about this practice going on. And so we wrote about it. And then we just kept writing about it. I think we wrote two or three stories about it. And I get to see a ton of accountability from it, to be honest with you. But I do know there are some officers who have been fired. Uh, I don't know specifically how many for that practice. But again, like many things in the, that's been negotiated, we learned the hard way that this was an issue specifically that wasn't to be handled by COPA, but in the agreement was to be handled by BIA. So, you know, you've got the cops investigating themselves for this, essentially. Yeah, ridiculous. And once again, it, that shows just a lack of accountability. You're telling me, and this is... Um, you have to do systemic accountability. You're telling me none of their supervisors noticed their badges and names weren't our badges were Some covered? The, we, we had white shirts that had their names and badges covered, I believe. I would have to oh go back and confirm God. that. But, I mean, I, I have to confirm that, So, I, I, but I believe that we may have had one or two that I have photos of. Oh, my God. I mean, that just shows you the rot in the system when they're doing it, and then they're not stopping it. Especially, it would be one thing if these guys had it, and then 10 minutes later, their supervisor saw it and told them to take it, undo it or reported them, reported them for it. But the fact, it would be interesting... Um, to learn if any of the supervisors reported any of their officers for that. Because you know the answer is no. But it would be interesting well, you know, to at least give them a shot to see. And to play, to, to be fair, you know, the, the big comment I got a lot from, whether it be readers after the fact or some anonymous emails from 
quote unquote police officers, but I never got direct comment from CPD on this, but a lot of people were saying that these officers were afraid for being doxxed or, you know, having their address or home um, put out there and having their families be at danger. But I, I guess as someone who's been in uh, the military, that argument doesn't really sit right with me because you, you signed up to take this job and to pick up a badge and to pick up a gun and to protect your community or everything that comes along with being a sworn officer or a sworn member of the military, et cetera. We don't get to hide our name badges. Like that's just not something that we get to do. It's just like a politician doesn't get to hide from a reporter the same way a private citizen does. You know, a private citizen has the right to say, I don't want to talk to you. I'm Joe Schmo. I live on Drury Lane and I don't want to talk to the reporter. But, you know, the state senator doesn't get to say that. You know, when you take on a public role or take on a public position, you that comes with responsibilities. And if you don't want that responsibility, then find a new career. Yeah, I, I listen, I understand the doxing, but you know what, officer? They can send a freedom of information request in like I have and have a listing of every officer and every badge number. That's a crack. That's a hundred-year-old practice that they're now using a, a 2000 uh, late teens excuse for why they've been doing it for over a hundred years. It doesn't hold water. And, and how about how about mugshots that are getting posted of people that aren't even that aren't even you know they're they're just charged and they're not even convicted of a crime yet. So those people are getting doxxed. Many of the protesters got doxxed by CPD. Yeah, they did. Yeah. No. Oh, it was an accident. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Some of them are um, the Twitter account. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, one of these things that also caught me in the article, uh, this was about a protest in Uptown. And ah. you're noticing uh, you're noticing about what you thought was private security or an unidentified officer walking around with an aluminum bat in their back. Yeah. Yep. So can you talk a little more about that so the, the audience understands what happened there? Yeah, that was after like uh, the Sunday night protests that went through Lakeview through Uptown. And it was large. It was really large. But it was very, uh, it, not, much, not much contention between law enforcement and protesters. It mostly went off without a hitch. There was a 9 p.m. curfew. And people... People mostly dispersed, but some people didn't. And I'm sure some people were just trying to get public transit. But, you know, as you know, a lot of the public transit was shut down by the mayor and CTA during this. Um, and so people were walking around and I started seeing these guys with big aluminum metal bats in the back of their, their flak jackets that were just sticking out. They just stuck them in there. And they were just unmarked, you know, silver aluminum bats. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what the heck is, are those for? And so I go see it, and their back says, I believe it just says officers across their back, just officers. And their their shoulder te- tape didn't say CPD. It said something security services or agency. It looked like a private security contractor, basically. And I just felt that was very strange because it was just four or five of them. I think at least three or four of them had the bats. And I went up to, to ask them who they were with, and they refused to talk to me. And, you know, I... I I tried to put some pressure on him as long as I could, but after some time, you know, you start worrying about your own issues first because it was, it was past curfew. And I mean, I had a press pass, but some of the officers were, most of the officers respected the press pass. I will say uh, past curfew, but you know, it was definitely uh, not a time you wanted to be on the street longer than you really needed to. But I, I definitely think that it's pretty clear, even from the inspector general's report, that there were private contractors that were hired by the city for this, and those guys were probably some of them. Yeah, because that's what we need. We need uh, totally unaccountable people walking around the city with aluminum bats. Yeah, I'm just not sure how you uphold curfew. You know, how you do a uphold curfew with aluminum bats? That just, that seems an, an, an improper response. <laughs> no, it seems like totally untrained yahoos. Uh, giving carte blanche to act on the street like they want to. All right, so it's a great segue here. You mentioned the deputy public or the report from the inspector general, the deputy public safety inspector general. What stood out most for you in that report? I know you did a Twitter feed on it, um, but what what stood out the most for you on that? Uh, I think some takeaways were that I would say first that the mayor, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, had a lot more influence in the decision-making than she let on during the post-press conferences and during public statements and during the, the months wrapping up. 
I think the report shows that many of the decisions, whether it be raising the bridges or use, use of force, use of pepper spray, etc., were authorized by the mayor, which I, I think makes a lot of sense. Obviously, you know, the, the mayor, the police force falls under the purview of the mayor. I think that was my takeaway number one. I think the second takeaway was honestly how accurate Chicago's on-the-ground reporters were. I think most of the things that we saw and that we reported were confirmed in that report. Um, and, you know, if you look at the footnotes of that report, you'll see dozens and dozens of Chicago journalists' work featured in the Inspector General report. Um, I know my report with the Chicago Reader, or with the Chicago Reporter was featured under the section where they talked about officers covering up their badges. So I think, I think we showed, it showed that a lot of Chicago reporters got it right. Um, and I think that it showed that a lot of Chicago police officers took a lot of steps to shirk accountability. If you look at the body cameras, I think it said a, a pretty a pretty high percentage of body cameras incidents weren't even worn. I'm, I'm trying to find it in the report right now. But uh, I th- 43. 57% of force arrests were not captured on body cam, according to this report. And body cameras, as we, as you know, Tracy, are supposed to go on during any interaction, let alone one that could be possibly used of force. Oh, yeah. So did you think anything, did you think the report missed anything, in your opinion? I thought it was a pretty thorough report. Um, I thought it did a good job of just writing what they found. And not editorializing. I think it, it did a good. It did its job. I think. Uh, I think. I think the theme of the report was that the police officers were underprepared and not ready for what was going on. And I think perhaps that might be a bit watered down from maybe saying a little more honestly, like, look, a, a lot of officers did a lot of messed up things. And I, I don't necessarily know if that's the inspector general's role to say that. But um, I think when you look at and you look at a lot of the actions that happened, I think that there was it was just there was it was not a, it was not a, an adequate response from uh, in a lot of different ways. <laughs> you are way too kind for that. Yeah. And honestly, widespread, unprecedented looting. Um, most police forces are not going to be trained to respond to that all over the city, all at the same time. Incredibly, incredibly hard. But once again, we go back to they haven't had training in person mandatory since the academy. They're not going to be trained how to handle protests. That simply isn't true. This is a city that is... If you don't mind me jumping in, um, since you reminded me of it, you know, the... Well, I read in that report too something I, I believe is the National Guard is not because they sent the National Guard in that they didn't want them responding because they weren't trained in non-lethal force techniques and that one threw me for a, for a, for a spin because I don't understand how that could be possible because if you have National Guardsmen and they're only trained for lethal techniques I mean I don't know National Guardsmen's training but I mean I know that's not how the Marine Corps does it. Well, you know it's interesting. I read that too. And um, the thing that I I try to explain that National Guard troops generally are not trained in the non-lethal use of force and that it was therefore high priority to avoid putting them in a situation where they would need to respond with force. And so if anything, what are they really there for? Well, my my question is then who are the why are we have 10,000 troops around the Capitol right now, a few blocks from me where I'm where I'm sitting right now. So they're only trained. They're only trained to shoot. Like I think National Guard has been responding to protests and uprising since we said we since we created them. That I mean, I think it shows that, that maybe we maybe the the way we're training, be it our police or our national guards, is. I mean, obviously, we need we need to realize that dealing with the public, especially in large scales in protest, is never going to go away. I mean, that's part of being an American is having protests, and that that should be protected. You know rigidly and so we, we need to train people on you know I, I wonder a lot of times what would have happened if the city and the police force and etc the powers that be would have just said let the protesters march and on saturday they just let them march and if they want to take the highway they take the highway if they want to take the dan ryan they take the dan ryan if they want to march downtown and block off every street just let them but it, from day from the first minute we were there it felt like they were already corralling people and trying to put them in different boxes and splitting up the crowds and it just created chaos and it created pandemonium. And I feel like if you just had a unified group, 
of hundreds of thousands of people allowed to actually march and protest and demonstrate, you know, be it if they want to come to Trump Tower and let them. I just kind of wonder what would happen if we just allowed when it, when something is that big, you know, and some movement has reached that level. Trying to contain it seems almost counterintuitive to me. It just seems it seems that when you try to contain it, you're almost and you can almost enrage it because this, these are people that are upset and you know for good reason. You know, they're people are tired of seeing black and brown people shot in the streets or you know murdered with a, a chokehold or a knee to the neck. People are tired of it. And so I just think trying to contain it so rigidly, I think, actually ended up causing a lot of issues. Yeah, and there's science. There's science to show, despite what you heard from politicians in Chicago and the and the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, um, the more you dress um, police yes. up in the turtle suits and yep. the armor and everything, the more you put that in, in that. Um, shape and that stance and that response, especially mm-hmm. the peaceful protests, the more you're yep. inviting and encouraging violence than you are actually well, uh, reducing it. When you're down there and you and you get down there and you see you see the the, the state police arrive in their full you know ar- full body armor and you know their their zip ties and their batons and the whole riot shields and the, it does it raises the the tension level you know even your general person on the street is like oh wow stuff is happening versus when you we were <laughs> out on Sunday there was hardly any of the same kind of force police officers there was a, some guys with some shields but for the most part there was a lot less of a presence. And, and if you notice, that protest went off without a hitch. And that was because it wasn't, you know, on the north side. And I think there's a striking difference of the response for the, yeah. the near north siders versus the south side or downtown. No doubt about it. So the last thing I want to talk about is some uh, body camera stuff that you mentioned a little bit. Cite some st- statistics from the report and then get you to comment before I let you go here. As you said, yeah. 57% of Force arrests weren't captured on body camera. 49 of the 113, or 43%, of reported uses of force weren't captured on body camera footage. Um, Wow. The report indicates a high likelihood that many force incidents weren't recorded at all. I would say 99% of them. I may go off. I may be wrong. It may be um, 99.9999%. But yes, most of them weren't. and there were, and the supplementary sources suggest there were far more dangerous and potentially out of policy uses of force than CPD's orig- uh, official records indicate. Not a shock. And this is the in- last one that I find kind of interesting because I think IAD was actually deployed at some point onto the street. The decision to deploy members without body wear body-worn cameras combined with obscured identifiers and scant development records make it difficult and impossible in some cases to implement individual level accountability for misconduct. No kidding. But my question would be, so first of all, that's all horrible. And yes, officers not wearing their body cameras or turning them off or not using them, awful. How do we still have cops who don't have them? How is a cop allowed to go on the street without a a body-worn camera? This is just you know, probably financial in my perspective, but I just want to get your thoughts as to, to close it out here. I have a hard time believing it's financial considering the size of the police budget. Um, but <laughs> I, it, it really bothers me too, Tracy, because you know when I was interning for you years ago, this was already an issue that was settled. This was already a, you know, the police are going to have to wear their body cameras. This is, this is the way, this is the new, this is the new, you know, SOP standard operating procedure. And, and here we are years later and we're still dealing with this, this crap, quite frankly. And I mean, I, I as I know I'm a journalist, but this is, this isn't, this isn't about being biased or not. This is the consent decree has come down. This is, they've been told by the federal government how to app and how to operate. And then I cover a shooting in Inglewood weeks or even a week after the, the, the big protests and the community safety team who was created to respond to these kind of events not, don't even have equipped with body cameras. They don't even have them on. So they get a back alley shooting and it's, you know, the guy with the gun against the police officer's word and there's no body camera and this is just after the protest that went down in the summer and so i think at this level in the game there's no excuse for cpd not to have all of their officers equipped with body cameras tomorrow march 2nd and any day they go longer than that is unacceptable 
Yeah, I agree. I think that may have been reason enough to fire Brown that he created that summer unit and didn't mandate that they all go out with cameras. He did a disservice. That's a disservice to all the officers. Let's say for some reason, let's just say hypothetically that shooting in that alley. I don't remember the, uh, the, the victim survivor offender's name who was shot. I'm sorry, too many of them to keep all the names all over the country in your head at one time. Let's say that shooting was perfect. The community's not going to believe it because they don't have a camera. And they view your camera as not having a camera as being corrupt. Right. You know how you get it? By by showing people video. (laughs) Here's the thing, Tracy. It's just such a no-brainer to me as someone who has worked a profession where I carried a gun. It, it, it protects everybody involved. I don't understand why this isn't being more. I mean, I guess I, I, I can, but if, if everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing, then body cameras are good for everyone. Because if, like you said, a perfect stop happens, a perfect situation happens, and an officer has to use their weapon and has to, has to shoot, then the body camera is in the best interest of the officer. So there's really no argument to me whether you're pro police whether you're anti-police, pro-protester, anti-protester, whatever have you, you should be wanting police officers with body cameras on. And I, that's the first thing protesters would ask police officers is put your body camera on. And that's oftentimes why they would allow me to be ushered to the front of the protester police lines because they wanted someone with a camera there. They wanted it to be documented. They wanted it to be so it wasn't our word against theirs or what have you. And it's just frustrating that we're still fighting this battle. Yeah, I think any officer that got found to have his body camera off during those protests should be suspended at the very minimum. Um, it's, it's just the whole thing. It's just obscene. And that's all on purpose. And we're talking, um, you know, spring, summer of 2020, not, you know, 2005 or 1995. Yeah. Right. It's, it's unbelievable that that stuff still happens. Um, all right. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You did amazing work over the summer reporting on this. Um, you were definitely my go-to Twitter feed for sure on that topic. Well, so thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, and it feels right, cool. personal coming from your intern all the way uh, to your show. I know. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Um, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back Wednesday. We're on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30 p.m. Central. Um, next week, next Monday, we have Deborah Witzberg, the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General, the author of this report, um, talking about the report and the investigation. And next Wednesday on the 10th, we have Alderman Matt Martin, um, and we're trying to get a couple more city council members to talk about what is going on with that community commission and why we still don't have one nearly two years after Lightfoot was elected when she said she candidate Lightfoot said she'd get it in the first 100 days all right thank you all so much for being here i really appreciate it we will see you uh, on wednesday 5 30 central back here thank you very much have a great day jonathan thanks again